0: Looking to generate more revenue and build relationships with gamers worldwide? Let Exola be your guide. Exola, a global video game commerce company, has helped thousands of game developers and publishers of all sizes fund, market, launch, and monetize their games globally and across multiple platforms. To learn more, please visit xsola.pro/aoiaas.
1: Hi, I'm Austin Wintry, and this is The Game Maker's Notebook. Long time coming uh, chat today with Neil Acre, who has a many years history with Blizzard writing music on basically all of their major franchises in tandem with their uh, wonderful staff lineup of composers. We get into all of that and uh, book in the conversations with his absolutely fascinating and wonderful and inspiring stories working in television first, Uh, At the early part of his career with the composer Joel Goldsmith on Stargate SG-1 and subsequent projects. And then most recently with the unbelievable critical role talented team uh, on The Legend of Vox Machina. So a conversation that goes a lot of different places, a lot of great stories and kind of culminates in a wonderful and poignant and and, uh, inspiring tale of, of embracing the quiet moments and finding your own voice and doing a thing entirely for yourself just to know that you've done it. It was a great chat. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a
0: podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven
1: organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Woohoo! All right, off we go. Sitting here with Matt Mercer, <laughs> uh, I genuinely—I've seen you without any facial hair more. Than with, but because we met and you were pretty beardy, I can't unclasp my brain from that. Like, you're just, it's just like a phase, like, oh, he's clean shaven right now. It's been years, I feel like. But according
0: to Facebook, it's been almost exactly three years. And I haven't updated my, haven't updated any of the social media profile pictures because who wants to take uh, promo shots during the pandemic, you know, just,
1: well, I think it's also a combo of you. You also, I remember um, you used to post like daily. Here's my taco receipts. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and then you stopped doing that, and it seemed like it seemed like uh, you know not to not to veer straight out of the gate into things that have nothing to do with music. But it seemed like you lost quite a lot of weight I did. Uh, yeah. as, as well, too. So it was like everything about your appearance had changed, uh, and all all in a very, I guess positive direction, but it's just so funny where I'm like, I just, I'm, you're so branded. It's so cooked in my head. (laughs) Yeah. So so it goes
0: not quite uh, Tom Selleck shaving his mustache off, but I get what you're saying.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) My, my dad had a full on Tom Selleck style mustache. And one time as a kid, he, I was really young. I was like probably seven. He shaved it off just on a whim and I remember freaking out it's like I remember as a kid going that's not my dad and like having a almost panicked response and my'm sure my parents thought it was funny because it was like he's really overreacting to this but yeah <laughs> I, I it was it was alarming um, in any case uh, how you doing good how about you uh, you know it's life is seemingly uh more or less back to normal uh, traveling a bunch and sessions and the things that normally are the, um, um, the hallmarks of time, like the thing that marked the biggest change when the whole world kind of went away um, seems to be basically at full swing. So I cautiously am like, I think life is basically normal and busy and cause you, one of those little telltale signs was I felt like it was fairly often that we would see each other at concerts. Um, and once I went, you know, a year and a half of that not happening, it's a real noticeable, uh, life is messed up metric.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Um, but how about for yourself? Uh, well, I went and
0: had twins, uh, just before the pandemic started. So, Though life may be back to normal <laughs> in certain ways, I <laughs> haven't been getting out too much. But um,
1: yeah, you really reset the clock on on uh, your fatherhood POV.
0: Yeah, but it's you know interesting times. But you know I've been staying very busy, and and that's I think as as a, a artistic person, as a creative person, I think like is whatever I'm creating or doing anything relating to creating. I feel like I'm fulfilling my purpose as a human being. And when I'm not, I feel completely out of whack. So, you know, as long as I'm busy, I'm I'm good.
1: Well, there's a lot of different things I'm kind of eager to, to dig into. Uh, Obviously not, you know, there's no shortage of things to talk about musically professionally, but you're quite singular in that you have real profound talents outside of music. So I guess I guess even though I often kind of do this in a semi-biographical way and I love to hear about childhoods and, and things like that, I, I'm going to just kind of start in a sort of random place because one of the things that I admired when I very first met you was discovering that your sculpting and kind of physical art chops are no joke – um, and that's not. Oh, he's pretty good for a composer. But to me, it struck me as if you had decided that was your greater passion. You music could have been a side hobby, uh, and I. I don't mean to sound like one of those people that just goes, oh, like anytime you know, the uncle hears the nephew sing and goes, you should be on Broadway. And you're like, you don't know what you're talking about. So I, I don't want to be guilty of being that person. But as somebody who's in a relationship with a serious artist, I look at your stuff and I go, good Lord, this is no, this is not amateur work. So uh, can you t- tell me what's up with that? <laughs> <Can> you, <laughs> where, where did this start? Um, and, and did you ever actually seriously consider pursuing that? Re- un, you know, separate or instead of a career as a composer?
0: First of all, thank you so much. It's so nice to hear. Um, Yeah, my my father was an amazing artist. Um, He drew, he painted, sculpted, just the most creative person I've ever met. Just like house was full of like just little, you know, make some little sculpture out of paper and just, you know, everywhere in the house, full of little things. He just created all the time. And um, But he didn't have the opportunity to make a career out of it because he was you know had a family when he's young and um, became a parts manager at uh, auto dealership and and um, you know he kind of felt like he he had to provide for the family and um, I always sure. had kind of a sense of you know he kind of wished he, he had done something else but couldn't so for me that was um you know always a motivator for me early on to to, you know, there was an assumption, an unspoken assumption that I was going to do whatever I wanted to do and not have to worry about that because, you know, he hadn't. Uh, so I, you know, the first thing I knew how to do, the first, uh, my first identity as a kid was the ability to, to draw. When I was 10 years old, I was selling hand-drawn Ghostbusters posters. This is just before Ghostbusters came out. And, um, so you had the, you know, the uh, the artwork would be in magazines and stuff. Right. And, yeah. The pre-release yeah. hype. So I was like selling uh, subscriptions to you get a Ghostbusters art pack, or I draw a poster, you get a picture of Slimer and this, and uh, to my classmates in school, and then I'd be drawing, drawing a all the stuff. Subscription
1: model. You were, yeah. you were you were you <laughs> were art as a service before that was a thing. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And so I'd I'd sell I'd draw them during class and.
1: Um, <laughs> that's and funny. I, I've <laughs> never you've I've never gotten this story from you before. This is ama- first off. That's amazingly entrepreneurial. Uh, yeah. Like most kids, uh, well, most kids are probably just not most people. I think are probably not especially entrepreneurial unless they're sort of encouraged to be or something excites them to be. But the average kid is like, okay, I'll make a lemonade stand, uh, or you know, I remember there's childhood video. Of my sister uh from probably around that same time, actually. It's probably from you know, maybe 1984, 85, um, where she she set up an ice water stand. Uh it's like even less work to do than a <laughs> lemonade stand. And my my dad had one of those shoulder-mounted uh VHS camcorders, and he's filming a tight close-up on my sister screaming at the top of her lungs ice water for sale. And then he zooms out and dramatically reveals that it's Denver in January and everything is frozen. It's completely (laughs) covered in snow. And he, he, you can hear him say something like she's still working on her business acumen, uh, (laughs) which always killed me. So that's like, to me, closer to normal. What on earth made you think? I know. Pre-released poster subscription model. I mean, that's quite a thing for a kid.
0: I have no idea where that came from. Certainly not my parents. I mean, my Grandmother, so my grandmother had an antique shop and she might have been from her uh, just that, you know, inherited that sense of, um, you know, trying to find your way doing what you love. I don't know. But that was admittedly very young. Uh, but I, I found my identity uh, through art. I mean, I always felt I very quiet in school, always felt like invisible until someone in the class realized that I could draw. And all of a sudden, Everyone's like, oh, you're the one that can draw. And that became my identity. And um, so by the time I was, uh, you know, early high school, uh, even earlier than that, the plan was to go to school, study art and become an artist. That's just what I was going to do. And uh, I ended up going to, uh, you know, studying art in college for the first semester. And then I had one music class. Because I had, uh, you know, I I was playing guitar when I was fourteen in bands, so forth. It's kind of a hobby. First semester of college was art and one music class. Second semester of college was music and one art class, and then music all the way. Something about it, something about it, just music just took over, and and I honestly don't know what it was. I think it's just. You know, music is, is so much more immersive. The process of making music, uh, whatever it was, it just it took over. And then at some point, you know, a few years into that, I realized music plus picture plus, you know, meaning uh, film footage.
1: Yeah. Footage. I, yeah. That was going to be my next question is if, if your re- frame of reference was playing guitar, playing in bands and also adding to that the idea that art as a place of self-expression could very much, you could easily see how the two of those would add up to, oh, I'm going to be a solo artist or I'm gonna play in bands or frontline a band or something like that. It's a totally different instinct to put those abilities and you have to almost set aside what you would have been learning and that identity that you have wrapped up as a visual artist, because that's very solo. It's not like you were fantasizing about being a concept artist or something, which would be the kind of crude analogy So what did you have like the that one score? There's often that one that people see and they go, "Oh, that's it. That's the path."
0: There was, you know, of course, we all have ones. I feel like the seeds had been planted my whole childhood. Of course, Star Wars, and uh, I think my first, the first viewing. It's just
1: worth it's just worth inserting for those yeah. who are listening on Spotify that you have a life size Darth Vader over your right shoulder and a life size Han and Carbonite over your left shoulder and what they don't see but which I know is elsewhere in the house is innumerable others including one of the most amazing uh, m- models of uh, you know X wing f- surface skimming over the Death Star that's just may as well be straight out of the ILM workshop I mean it's unbelievable. Uh, stuff so yeah clearly Star wars was important
0: and that there, there's there's a, a connection to that too because when I, I think I, I must have been six years old when the they started having the uh behind the scenes you know on ilM that uh, you're broadcasting those on you know primetime television yeah. and I and I would get the uh the collector's edition magazines that came you know came out during each for each of the movies and they'd have pictures of the model shops and, and the blue screens and, and all the ships and everything. And and I just remember thinking as a kid, like I, I want to do that somehow. I wanna I wanna be involved in making movies. And I didn't know how, but I just that was a thing. And of course they'd have, you know, a little thing on John Williams every time. And I wasn't as a kid saying, I want to do that, but it was always there first album i ever got was the 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 whatever, the story of the empire strikes back that had the dialogue and the music
1: and you uh-huh. know all that like an like an audio dramatization of it
0: no it's like literally they just took the movie and released a record of the movie the movie on you know the sound track of the of the movie so you could listen to the movie cuz this is before vhs you couldn't rent the movie you you had to you know difficult to see the movie in the theater uh, every day, but I'd listen to that over and over again. You hear all the, the sound and the music and everything all together, certainly a, a, a big uh, influence. And then I think uh, years later, I had a friend that was playing the Beetlejuice soundtrack for me. And I remember that I was probably 14 maybe and, and like thinking how cool that was, you know, just listening to music. The first time in a long time I was listening to, Soundtrack music on its own, but then Legends of the Fall—that's the one that Uh, that was like right the right time, right place, and just the most amazing, perfect score. And please tell me you bought
1: the book that just came out recently. I did. Yes. Yeah. Okay.
0: okay. (laughs) So it um, was—that's what nudged me because I think I'd say for five years. I was thinking I'm going to be a solo artist, um, listening to a lot of new age, which sounds sounds cheesy. It sounded cheesy at the time, but instrumental music based on you know kind of textural stuff, and uh, but it's still still trying to write melodic stuff and and experiment with different things. Um, right. But then, um, yeah, Legends of the Fall, and then there's always people would always hear my music and be like, oh, you should you should make music for movies, and I, and I thought that's an interesting idea (laughs) and while i was in school uh had a teacher named mike watts who uh is a session keyboard player uh does a lot of stuff for john debney and um he had a you know this electronic music class at school and was like uh teaching a synthesis and a couple times you know we would write music to picture as as a, a a task and um you know, uh, so I kind of get get some basic ideas of, of what it was about. And then he would invite some of the overachieving students to go to sessions with him. And um, I, I so signed me up for that. So I, I first thing we ever did was like, uh, well, the first thing I ever did was like a karaoke session. And, the, you know, had a bunch of musicians would sit around. They'd play, you know, karaoke tracks. And I think he was just testing me out to see if I'd be cool in a studio. Situation.
1: Wow. That's funny. Fun. I've never heard of that. That's yeah. That's an <laughs> interesting, almost like personality audition.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, interesting. And then the
0: the next session was, I think it was, uh, Batman the Animated Series.
1: Oh my God! What a what a what an introduction to the world of scoring. That's unbelievable.
0: And next one after that was the movie Turbulence. You were, on a, you were on
1: a Shirley Walker pattern here.
0: And she came over, uh, you know, I was sitting behind Mike Synthrig at the back of the room and she came over and she said, you know, welcome to the big time and gave me a wink, you know, because she knew me from the, the the TV sessions. Now this is, you know, a big feature film. And then, but there was uh, John Debney's Liar Liar session, Todd mm-hmm. A.O. He brought me to that and that was... Standing in that room and, and, you know, meeting all the musicians and meeting John, there was this moment that I said, you know, there's something that became very real about it. Like seeing how down to earth everyone was, how much fun everyone was having. I thought I got to I got to do this somehow. Mm -hmm. So I asked my teacher, we got back uh, later that night and I I said, do you think I could be a composer? He's like, "Eh, I don't know you know, it's, he got to, got to really, uh, got to really want it. And he was kind of just trying, he was trying to, I realized years later, he was just trying to make sure that I, that I wanted to do it no matter what. And wasn't right, going to yeah. do it because he told me I could do it. Uh, and I think uh, there's a
1: lot, I mean, that's actually a bit of pedagogical mercy because I think there's a lot of students that go, they, they go through the motions, they score the, stock clips, they learn Pro Tools, they do all the things, and they think, I've done my part, now hand me a career. And yeah, uh, yeah, somewhere sure. along the lines, the the music um, uh, uh, education system has not braced them for the fact that this is a brutally hard career, and they're in no way guaranteed to make it. Uh, that they not just make it seem like... You know, sure, why not? Anyone can do it. Why you know, you can do it. Although that said, something in there, I'm curious. Going to Shirley Walker, first off, Batman the Animated Series was like one of the most premium TV uh composer gigs out there. I mean, it's super high profile, good, solid weekly recording budget, you know, this composer, top of her game, and like a real trailblazer in the industry. There's a lot of things where I'm amazed that it that that wasn't the instant. Oh my god! This I gotta be honest. I don't
0: remember the timeline. If the if the debney session happened first, or which one did somewhere well, I in mean, there for sure. Th- yeah. I think
1: liar liar was like wasn't that like ninety seven or so? So I would think the animated series had to have come before. Uh, I mean, either way, yeah. I, I get I get that Todd A O was also, um, you know, I love Warner. It's probably my favorite scoring session, but Todd A O. Felt like the big league, so I could see how that might kind of be the thing that pushes you over the edge.
0: Yeah, because turbulence was at Paramount. Um, ah, yeah. And still, I mean, they were all amazing studios that uh, sadly
1: are not there anymore. Not- yeah, both Paramount and uh, Todd AO. Uh, I was actually I had one of the one of the great privileges of my career was I was able to go to James Horner's last ever Todd AO session because that was sort of his go-to. He you know he really preferred that stage when in LA. And he was doing this movie, The Spiderwick Chronicles. And the final day of sessions for that was only a few weeks from Todd A.O.'s close. So it wasn't Todd A.O.'s last session, but it, Horner knew he was never going to be back in that room again. And oh. I remember Peter Rotter coming up to me and going, probably don't talk to james today he's in a bit of a mood because he's (laughs) genuinely down this place has been a big part of his life for 30 years and he's having to say goodbye to it um and it was quite a thing to witness you know because he was doing the end credits that was the one cue for the entire three hours it's like an eight minute cue no click and a single unbroken take and yeah i mean it was it was sort of quintessential Horner session in that way of all the things that he was known for doing, working super slowly and methodically and long, long cues. And um, anyway, so, yeah, Tadeo, um, it seemed impossible. It seemed like surely they're not going to actually get rid of it. Like someone's going to come in and swoop in and save it. And nope, it it is now cubicles.
0: Yeah, it's it's so sad. I was very lucky to get to see some Horner sessions in person as well. And that was uh segueing you know, to something here. I, so at the end of my college run uh, by uh, a friend w- was asking if I wanted a job doing cartage over the summer. And uh, I thought, yeah, it's kind of a, you know, physical labor job. Doesn't sound that, that fun. It's mm-hmm. not exactly what I want to be doing, but, you know, it's like
1: being a piano mover as working
0: in the music industry. Exactly. But I thought I'll give it a shot. I've always tried to be open to opportunities and, and, you know, see what happens. And sure enough, like the first week was, you know, going from studio to studio, met James Horner and Jerry Goldsmith and just every single hero of mine and getting to just sit in the back of the room, you know, while the guy I was working for was like, you know, not impressed at all. He's like, you know, I, I hate waiting around. I'm like, please let's stay longer. <laughs> and, you remember which uh, scores they were? Well, um, Star Trek insurrection with Jerry. Ugh. and, um,
1: what a beautiful, uh, big, big tomboy to oboe solo, right? at The front end of that.
0: Yep. Yep. And it was the opening cue that they were doing, um, That's you know, o- over and over again. And it was funny as we're standing in the room and, and you couldn't hear the the synthesizer stuff. He'd you have know, the kind of little, a little synthesizer pulses. Um, so you're standing in the room and it just orchestra would play and it'd be just dead quiet. And everyone's still like completely silent. And then yeah. <laughs> back in again. Um, and then, you know, Titanic was that summer. Uh, you you know, went
1: to Titanic session. I was
0: sitting in for for like at least a couple weeks, almost every day. And that was at that point I had made friends with the uh, Ian Underwood, who was the uh, keyboard player for Horner. Uh, did a lot of his, one of his keyboard players did a lot of stuff for him. Um, so we would move his equipment in. And I I'd just say, can I just, on the days we're not moving you, can I just come and hang out? And he said, sure. So I would sit there behind his rig, wow. and you know, uh, talk to James every once in a while and, and people, there's always be stories about how he'd be kind of moody and unfriendly to people. But first thing I said to him was, I'm such a big fan. I love your work. And then ever since then, Every time he saw me, he'd smile and, and ask how I was doing, and super warm to me. And
1: I, I, I remember uh, when I first moved to LA, I took Sandy De Crescent to lunch, and she told me a bunch of stories. And one of them that she told was that Horner, as the as his reputation for being very kind of uh, unpleasant was spreading, one day she he basically said to her, you know, why don't people like me, <laughs> more or less? <laughs> And she said, "Because you're not a nice person." Uh, and she said, to his credit, he took it to heart and it and and really became a different person after that. Because I I was at Avatar and at Spiderwick Chronicles, and I had the same impression. I didn't really interact with him much because um, he was working, obviously. And now, who was I to to to, to say anything? But um, I remember thinking, "There's no way the musicians could dislike this guy." I mean, he would he would periodically just stop. Say everyone doing okay? You know, should we take a ten early or like he was thinking of their well-being in a way that was very obvious. And and I kept thinking back to that thing where where I think I think if it had been ten or fifteen years earlier, it would have been like this isn't good enough. We have to like would have been a very kind of bristly and um, so I love that it's, it's like what you're saying is very kind of concordant with what I'd heard. And I and I love hearing these other perspectives of people who say, oh yeah, no, he actually he was really. Um, it was kind, and of course, who wouldn't like a fan, <laughs> but yeah, of course. Uh, but still, that's that's great to hear. And Titanic, I mean, my god, uh, you know, so much gets lo- like swept under the rug on the fact that the song took over the world so much. But that's just such an incredible score, Absolutely. it really is such a feat of musicality.
0: And so much of the score wasn't used. That's that's the thing I think a lot of people don't realize is there was a lot of these, you know, uh, big action sequences that had score going through them that they dropped it in favor of sound effects or, you know, even like the, you know, the the string quartet playing and, um, you know, not, not necessarily a bad thing for the, you know, the end result obviously speaks for itself, but, you know, I remember there was, there was a couple cues that I was sitting in the room and then I watched the movie and like, what happened to that, that cue? And
1: wow. I I didn't even know about the, that, uh, there being big significant cuts like that. That's pretty amazing.
0: They're on this, the second, they've released a second album, more music from
1: Titanic or something. And it's right, the, like, they're on that. Yeah, um, That's incredible. Did you have occasion to interact with Jerry during Star Trek? Uh,
0: yes. I So I, I met him in the hallway. And at that point I was, I was working for his synth uh, guy, Nick Vidar. And, um, so I, I see Jerry in the hallway and I said, excuse me, Mr. Goldsmith. I just want to say, I'm, I'm a big fan of yours. And he said, uh, I uh, so I'm a friend of Nick's. That's what I said. And he goes, Nick has friends. And he just kept walking. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, that's such a Jerry Goldsmith exactly. story exactly <laughs> at the time. I didn't real, I didn't realize that that was like so consistent for him. And then I ended up meeting, you know, Jonathan Frakes, like oh, moments wow. later, um, and, uh, and he, he, uh, he saw that I was looking at him and he said, he reached out his hand and said, I'm, you know, I'm Jonathan. I said, thank you. And, uh, he just <laughs> had this look that you've seen what, in all
1: the, the Riker memes that kind of, you know, <laughs> yeah, what a smooth, what a smooth response. <laughs> yeah. I remember once, um, the composer, Eric Whitaker told me once that he was teaching school, high school music, I think, or like, yeah, it must've been high school music, uh, I can't be right. Maybe, well, I bet, I bet it, was. it was like, cause whatever it was, he was, this is well before his career was kind of off and running and he was, uh, you know, successful in any, in any sense. And he was teaching at a school and Jerry, I guess would have had a grandkid at the school and he saw Goldsmith come to like pick up the kid or do something. And he ran, he ran out into the parking lot and he got so flustered. He goes, Mr. Goldsmith, you're my biggest fan. And Jerry just looked at him and did the, did a kind of head tilt thing and then just didn't say a word and drove off. He goes, that's the one and only time I ever met him. And I thought that was so, did you interact by chance much with Kenny Hall, his music editor? I
0: met him a couple of times, but, but not, I wouldn't say I, I really knew him at all.
1: He's somebody I wish everybody had had the chance to know. I I never met Jerry, but Kenny was, was like an uncle to me. We became really close and, and, uh, He was just the best and he loved Jerry, thought of him as a big brother. He was one of the only people that had only good stories because Jerry was also famously a little cantankerous, but uh, I do, I do envy. I'm grateful I never met him because to me, he remains this kind of deistic, like non-person. He's just this embodiment of all things I admire. Uh, But I also can't help but just uh, how wonderful to have been able to see him work you know at the office as it were so what a what a cool experience was there any others other than star trek oh
0: oh yeah well um well small soldiers and um oh nice it's around that time period oh um the one with robert redford the last castle uh
1: oh i like that score uh I remember that one had the unfortunate timing of coming out right on top of 911. Exactly. And kind of kind of got swept under the rug uh I think and and uh you know Jerry I remember they repurposed his theme to be a kind of hymn or a sort of elegy for 911 but but um yeah that that definitely puts us in a very specific 2001 time and place.
0: Yeah, at that point I was working Working for his son Joel Goldsmith, who was hu- tremendously instrumental in early in my career, and that start, that was another cartage inroad that um, helped him move his studio from one side of town to the other and stayed yeah. on as his assistant and left the cartage behind. But you were talking about Jerry, like the you know, while I did have that that initial meeting was very gruff, uh, once I started working for his son, it became a whole different relationship and and I he'd come over for you know family gatherings and stuff and and when he knew that I was working for Joel he kind of treated me completely differently and, and it was sure uh you know I felt like very it's a good feeling to to know somebody that's that that's known for being so gruff to be to have them be you know warm to you and um and there'd be times where where Joel would uh, and Joel knew I was a huge fan of Jerry's so he'd uh take advantage of every opportunity to like, kind of like, like give me an example. Uh, I was working on this, this, uh, sci-fi channel movie that had was temped with alien and I went over to, to Joel's and I said, I'm trying to figure out what this sound is because it's like, it's in the temp score and it's such a specific thing. I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to try to do something like it. And he goes, hold on a second, hits uh speed dial speakerphone. His dad answers the phone. He goes, hey, dad, what's the sound? And he plays it. He goes, oh, yeah, that's like a didgeridoo being blown in a bucket of water. <laughs> like, all right, thanks. And he, <laughs> uh, you know, just, you know, right on tap. And then another time we were watching Rudy. He, Joel got this, oh. big, uh, got this uh, big screen and uh, projector put in his studio. And, and for like a couple weeks, all we did was just watch movies on the big screen. And Rudy was one of them. And so at the end of Rudy, <clears throat> he goes, huh. Speed dials his dad. He goes, Dad, why why did you put choir in Rudy at the end? It's not through the, the rest of the movie. Why do you suddenly have choir at the end of the
1: movie? He goes, I don't know,
0: it just felt like it could use it. Okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> nice gig when you can just throw choir on ad hoc like that too. Yeah. <laughs> Good old studio, studio production budgets. Um, that score is truly one of my all-time favorites. And the and the stories um, – uh, like I remember they had this almost mythology around the sessions that it was like the whole orchestra was crying and, and you know, Jerry got a standing ovation when they finished the big final game cue, which never happens. Because like you mentioned, the musicians on a daily basis, they're playing – especially in the 90s. Just think of the, like that era where you've – You've got Goldsmith and, you know, Williams and Horner and James Newton Howard and Hans Zimmer and Danny Elfman. And then there's like the new guys like Goldenthal and, you know, Gabriel Yared and, and uh, uh, you know, but there's still like holdovers of, I mean, like, uh, you know, Hamlish and and uh, the, you know, the, I'm trying to think who would have been, I think, I can't remember when, um. Uh, yeah, Elmer, yeah, of course, absolutely. Um, and um, can't remember when Miklos Rosia's last score was, but he I think he only died in like 95. So it's like there was this era where, you know, it was a real changing of the guard, and and also the nineties was like one amazing score after another. I mean, it was just like what an incredible period of, of that was. So the musicians took it a little for granted, like it was their day job, and they oh, like I got another five days of, of Horner, you know, oh, we're just doing legends of the fall or what, you know, kind of thing. Um and, um, and so for the musicians to have given a Jerry a standing ovation was, it was like this rare treat. So one time, thanks to Kenny Hall, music editor, I had the great fortune of being able to meet the real Daniel Rudiger awesome. and, and spend an afternoon with him. And I said, this, and he was always supposedly in the booth when this happened. And I said, can I just ask if this story is true? Uh, and not, not only was it true. But I, I asked him, is there even a way to describe the feeling of your life's greatest triumph being put to screen? And first off, put to screen so beautifully and just from a filmmaking standpoint, so lovingly. But to have arguably the greatest composer ever just pour his heart and soul into it and, and just knock it out of the park and see that everywhere around him, people are going, this is a, this is a whole other level for you. I said, "Is there even a way to describe that?" And he basically was like, "No, there, 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 just simply isn't." It was, it was, it was, it was of all the highlights associated with watching his life story be told through the film, it seemed like being at the sessions, watching Jerry Goldsmith work, was one of the absolute pinnacle highlights for him. Which is not intuitive. You wouldn't, you know, you'd think being on set and watching Sean Astin be carried off the field or something might be the most exciting part. But it was really clear that that really meant. Uh, just everything to him. Um, I love I, I love your Joel Goldsmith connection so much. You're really, uh, amongst all of us here, fellow travelers in the world of games, um, you, you're a real outlier in that way because not only did you really serve a lot of time in the world of TV and really cut your teeth very meaningfully in a way that a lot of composers in games haven't, but to be like a, fo- a seat at the table with, with essentially composer royalty, uh, is, is so special. And I love, I never met Joel either, but I love every time I've heard you talk about him, you'd be hard pressed to he- like, you always talk about him as, as if he was a family member, uh, you know? Uh, like Absolutely was
0: Yeah. I always, I th- always thought of him like a second father. It really it's was.
1: amazing. I just love that. He, he seemed to, he seemed to really look after you. Um, And so just give me more of a sense. Obviously you, you work together primarily, I believe on Stargate SG one, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, it started with, uh, I think I started working for him just a couple years into the Stargate SG one run. And he you would have, you know, films come through and he he did, you know, call of duty three amongst those. Um, and, uh, you know, he's a real, just like his dad, just a real, like, uh, say blue collar just like real like kind of you know craftsmen like go in and and you know work all night and um you know he liked to he would he would procrastinate a little bit at the beginning and and we'd be up all night towards the end and i always remember thinking you know (laughs) when i start doing my own stuff i'm gonna i'm gonna do a little differently but um but he he would do it like he just you know, he's a a dramatically underrated composer, I think, you know, it's very talented and to, to have to come up, you know, in Jerry's shadow. And while that, I'm sure that the name opened plenty of doors for him. It was always like a, you got to live up to this, this name and this legacy. And, um, you know, he just, he had his own style. He came from a more of a rock background, you know, he produced rock albums early and he, did some some mixing on TV shows and came from a more of an audio standpoint. But as a composer, just he taught me so many things. And that's really, you know, that was my music school is, is you know, started working from pretty young. Um, and, uh, you know, taught me about, you know, simplifying melodies and how to develop a main theme, mm. mixing and, and the technical aspects of things. Um, you know, would always tell me my the shaker was sound was too loud. That was a constant <laughs> thing that would come up. To this day, I, I I'll always turn the shaker down just a little bit, just in case.
1: Uh, it's the the Joel polish.
0: But he was he was uh, you know a great great person to work for, and uh, you know I'm so so glad that I got that opportunity because he you know I think everything in my career now I can trace back to him in some way you know, he started working on uh, Stargate with him. And then um, at some point, you know, there was uh, some low budget movie that, you know, a director he'd worked with before wanted him to score. And he's like, "I, I can't, you know, but I have this guy, Neil, that'll do it. And that led to, you know, that director liked what I did. And that led to another film for him and more and more branched out from there. And then the, you know, Eventually became a co-composer on SG-1 and, um, you know, Sargate Atlantis as well. Uh, Just a lot of experience. And it was the kind of, you know, I don't know if things are any different now, but it was just like this, the the schedules were such a grind that you had to learn how to knock stuff out really fast. And that has taught me a certain shorthand. Taught me, I went in there telling, the first thing I told him was like, you know, MIDI-wise, I'll draw in, uh, you know, first violin, second violins, violas, cello, bass, and I'll, I'll write in each of the notes, and then I'll draw in a volume curve, and and that's that. He's like, oh, you gotta you gotta stop all that. He's like, you gotta you gotta learn how to play play everything on the keyboard all at once. You gotta get a volume pedal, and um, so you can mix real time. So I did that, and then eventually got a, a left pedal. So now I do all the, you know, the stuff that's normally on the mod wheel. I'll do that with my left foot. So now it's kind of like wow! I didn't this.
1: know that that that's. I don't think I've ever talked to anybody that does that. Is that a is that is that a thing that was peculiar to him, or is this just like a school of thought I've somehow never been aware of?
0: So our friend Chris Stone, Christopher L. Stone, I think, who who did uh, the the original uh, uh, Slayer game, mm-hmm. as well as Walker Texas Ranger, happened to be a, a an accomplished organ player as well as a uh, a pilot. So he so had the ability to use both feet very well. And he thought, you know, and he would score Walker Texas Ranger in real time. Like he just, you know, <laughs> hit record and then just play everything. And so he would develop, and I, I for a couple of years, I helped him develop some, some key switch patches, not even key switch, like a single patch that could, you know, using the left pedal could switch, you know, violins could could switch to, to trills, you know, and, um, but he'd use the left pedal and, You know, partially because I was helping him develop the sounds, I had to learn how to do the thing too. And when I did, I'm like, wow, this really it opens everything up. I can, I can focus on playing all the parts in, at least play in everything as a, the section, as a as a whole. uh, Focus on that, while simultaneously doing dynamics with my left foot and then overall balance, you know, uh, with the volume on on the right. And, uh, you know let the orchestrator figure out what, what's going to be first violins is second violins and stuff. So, but that was like a TV thing going early on. Just like, you got to figure out how to, rather than do one layer at a time, you can get it all at the same time add in the dynamics and uh, it just saves so much time. So, wow. you know, things like that with, with Joel was, uh, you know, a crash course for sure. But, Ultimately shaped my my process and and everything to this day.
1: So, if you say that your career can essentially be traced back to that, does that mean that there's some kind of connective tissue between your time there with Joel to your entry point into the game industry? I mean, obviously, you mentioned that he scored one of the the post Jakino Call of Duty games, and so was it was do you credit that as the as, that a, been, as the moment?
0: That might have been uh might have been either after or around the same time and completely unrelated so there was a point i think nine years into my career and at that point i had done 20 films and and was a co-composer on sg1 uh an agent reached out to me a guy from england and uh he he said would you you know be interested in, in working with me. i I want to, you know, maybe submit you for some games and stuff. And I remember thinking at the time almost like suspiciously, like, why do you want to work with me? Like, I'm not, you know, I've been trying to get an agent all this time. Why are you approaching me? But I thought, what's, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Uh, and so he ended up, uh, one of the first things he, he did was like, uh, you know, I got this, uh, you want to audition for blizzard, do thing for blizzard? So put together some tracks and, and uh And, like, they want you to to write, rescore the opening cinematic for Vanilla World of Warcraft. Uh, They sent it to me with no sound. And, uh, you know, of course, I I looked it up on YouTube and, like, saw what the original sound was, kind of figured, I assume that they want something kind of like this. Mm. So wrote something to picture and tried to keep it as close to the original feel but kind of expand on it a bit. And, and I got the gig with no previous game experience. At that point, wow. I had never recorded with an orchestra before, except for maybe done a couple cues on a, a, a Stargate movie uh, in Seattle. But uh, got hired to score the opening cinematic for The Burning Crusade, which is the first expansion for World of Warcraft. And I also assumed that it might have been my uh, experience writing to picture that helped because I'm sure a lot of game, you know, predominantly game composers were up for it and, and maybe I just hit the right cuts at the right time. I don't know. But, um, you know, very lucky to jump in at that level. And, um, you
1: yeah, know, I don't think I had realized that it was essentially a blind audition. Um, I, I, so many of the stories begin with, Oh, I went to GDC or I went to this thing and we I met this guy at the bar or, and and they just kind of started chatting and then it was like oh you should call me on Monday with blah, blah, blah. like so many things kind of begin with variations on that there's very rarely career trajectory altering stories that began as basically fill out this form and submit it <laughs> you know what I mean yeah. and obviously write write a cue um uh, that's incredible was was this like cuz Russell would have been the the, the head of the music operation at that point. Right. Does that mean that he like had um, put out this call uh, or, or like, cause I'm just like how, cause I always think of him as, you know, as very hands-on and very, you know, involved, and obviously writing a lot of the music as well. And so uh, it's amazing to me that an agent could kind of just find you and, and, and connect the dots that way that's
0: well there's a the, the the to zoom in on that story even closer there was a producer who um they were doing something for another project and they wanted uh rob dugan uh of you know the the matrix uh woman in the red dress you know track uh you know fame uh electronic artists who like to blend orchestra and electronics and um so my agent was representing him at the time, no. and they said, um, "You know, uh, we're interested in working with Rob. Can you, you know, get us, a, you know, a quote from him?" And I think he was like, "I want a million dollars, and I want my name on the box, or something like that."
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah,
0: and, then, and this is this story has been, you know, told through several people, so I'm not sure if that actually happened. But impression I got was it didn't work out. And, and they're like, well, thank you for getting us in touch with them. Uh, you know, as a thank you, if you have anyone else in your roster, you want to send some, you know, music over, please do. And I happened to be on the roster and, and it kind of got me uh, in the door enough that they were familiar. They had listened to music and then they happened to have a, uh, a project coming up and um, you know, got a chance to audition and you know the audition is so important as you know you know you just to get to a point where they're willing to ask you to write something rather than just throw your you know your demo out the door before they even get there um so whatever tracks i had sent at the time and that was right after lord of the rings so uh probably a good amount of that sound had had made its way into some of the stargate music i was doing uh so they you know got a chance to audition and and uh, got the gig from that. and yeah, it's funny like you it wasn't like instant game composer, yeah, like it took a while and, and a lot of um, you know GDCs and uh, you know, continuing to work with Blizzard over the next few years, you know, different projects. and
1: well, yeah, I was gonna say you you are you've basically got your fingerprints and essentially everything they've done since then i mean it's a solid 15 years where yes of course there are you're not the only composer and i and i, I wouldn't dream of of misrepresenting it um um otherwise um but i mean y- you really are uh, so interwoven with with you know all the massive successes blizzard was always one of those companies that just astounded me that as someone who grew up obsessed with Starcraft and Warcraft two and then Warcraft three um, I remember I was obsessed with EverQuest, which is why I intentionally didn't touch world of Warcraft. Cause I thought I, there's just only so many hours in the day and I have a hard time enough of as, as it is putting down EverQuest. Uh, so I steered clear, but then, you know, all the subsequent, you know, Starcraft two and Diablo. And then, and then the fact that after all that, they're like, we're going to throw our hands into the shooter space and they make overwatch. And it's like instant success yet again. And you're, you're kind of, in my mind, you're all over all of these, maybe peppered throughout is more accurate. Uh, You, you know, the inside story more than I do, obviously, but, but it just seems like you became one of their absolute, most trustworthy go-to people such that there hasn't really anyone who's played any blizzard title for the last damn near 20 years has heard. Your work prominently is that a fair assessment? I mean, it really seems like a golden client for you.
0: Absolutely, a golden client, and and it, you're absolutely right to say that I was definitely not me doing everything. And sometimes, you know, especially in the game industry, credit gets, uh, you know, people want to assign credit to things because they want to have a face, uh, you know, to the to the music they're listening to. Uh, and there are so many talented people, especially on staff there, that that you know do the real, uh, you know, brunt of the work. But I've been very lucky to be involved on in, on some of the you know cinematics that were you know the higher profile things, and and um, you know get to to be involved in tentpole moments. And and yeah, I'm I'm very lucky, and they've they've been a great client, and um, yeah, just just so much of of the last. 16 years of my career has been, you know, games and, and doing big part to them.
1: I want to, I want uh, one of the things that I always remember being curious about as someone who, you know, we met, I don't know, at at least 10 years ago um, and have shared stage together, you know, many times where you're, you're doing any one of a number of blizzard pieces. But most of the time I was doing journey stuff and, um, And I always remember thinking, especially because I knew the, the Joel Goldsmith connection and the Stargate background. And, uh, and, you know, I always remember thinking um, you do an incredible job at fitting within a larger fabric, like something like world of Warcraft. I remember once having lunch with Russell, this was probably seven, eight years ago. And at the time there was like between 40 and 50 hours of music within world of Warcraft. And pretty much all of which is recorded and mixed and produced at the highest level. And so, I mean, it's just the sheer volume of resource commitment is staggering. It's probably double that now, if not triple that. I mean, it's like, there's so much there. And, but but point being, your role is an interesting challenge because you're, it's like, it's like there's a jigsaw puzzle with, with 50% of the pieces kind of there. And they're going, now we need you to add in a bunch of throughout where you're not creating a sound from scratch. But you're also doing no favors to just emulate what's already there. That, so that's its own challenge. I'm curious to hear you. Well, actually, before I kind of drive to the point I'm actually driving at, just walk me through how, how, how you manage that, because that's, that's easier said than done, I think, to step into kind of like a, a sound palette that's being forged by multiple people. And for a thing that's obviously got millions of active players and listeners, yeah, you know, that's a pretty small target to have to aim for.
0: Yeah. Great question. Um, probably. I'm sure I learned that working for Joel because we're working on the Stargate show that already had David Arnold's themes established. And then Joel had written more themes on top of that. Uh, so you kind of have this, uh, you know, library of, of themes. The sound is, is basically, you know, the sci-fi, film music language that we all know that, you know, in part came from the planets and, uh, you know, every sci-fi score that's ever been written, you have these little things that kind of make it instantly identifiable. Um, And then adapting to Joel's style, which was at times, you know, very uh, big and thematic, but at times very intimate. And another thing I learned from him too is just kind of, how to simplify right. uh, and not overdo, because I always had a tendency to just, you know, overdo it. <laughs> uh, but he would he could break it down to a simple piano melody, and I remember he would always, you know, because it was important to him to, you know, make a co- cohesive sound. He didn't want, the sc- you know, the score to sound like, you know, uh, David Arnold theme adapted by Joel Goldsmith and then with a bunch of other random stuff by me. Uh, so we worked together to try to make stuff. He'd write a theme for every episode and he he'd hand it to me and sometimes I, I'd be like, you know, this is a, a square peg and a round hole. I have no idea how to make this fit in, into the thing. Uh, so that was it was hard at first, but I, I, I suppose over years of doing it I figured out a way, some kind of some kind of way to do that. Uh, and then that prepared me for, know team based situations especially in world of warcraft the 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 beauty of it too is it makes the job easier if you come into something and you know the hard work of having to write a theme or having to just come up with something from nothing is already done you just right. have to really you know the the work there's always a research uh aspect to it you know figure out um you know the, the probably the the best known thing I've done relating to world of Warcraft is this piece called "Arthas, my son, the Lich King uh, cinematic that starts with a, you know, a, a solo boy singing a melody that Jason Hayes wrote. And that was just a matter of like digging through all the previous cinematics and, you know, figuring out like what sort of establishing thing, because, you know, if, if you're going to make a new star Wars movie and, and, you know, that's a whole different thing about you know redefining the sound of of star wars but let's say you're going to make a a, you know a franchise movie that's related to a whole you know pre-existing catalog of scores you're going to want to reference those those themes and make sure that the audience will hear them even if some people might have forgotten them there's i love the easter eggs putting in little easter eggs that maybe someone will figure out that that you know, that's an echo of something that happened 10 years before, maybe they won't, but it's there and it's, it's a chance to, to connect the things. And um yeah, I guess it's just one of those things like I didn't set out, you know, in my career saying, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be the guy that, you know, fills in the blanks and stuff like that. But it's, it's happened, happened plenty of times. And then there's, of course, there's a lot of times where, you know, it's, it's, the new, new concept, new characters, we need a new theme for this. And then, you know, trying to do something that exists in the same universe or, or working on a new game and uh, coming up with a completely new sound. It's um, it's also fun and challenging in its own way.
1: Well, that's a perfect segue to where my question was kind of gonna uh, lead to because, as someone who admired your ability to slot into a kind of larger tapestry, cause that, cause that's a thing I've not had occasion to do much. Um, and, and the, and I, the, uh, there's been a couple times in years past, especially when I got asked by like, when I was very just getting started and, you know, kind of eager for any work I could find, there were a couple opportunities to do additional music for much more established composers. And I always found it difficult because uh I had to I had to kind of sort of erase a lot of my normal instincts and try to emulate their instincts, which were pretty different from mine. And to because the goal was not to the goal was to sound like them. The goal was to disappear inside their work. And and that's not quite how I would describe particularly your your blizzard work because it's not like you're ghostwriting or something. Um, but it's still like a kind of like you said, there's themes and there's palette choices that you have to at least honor and, 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 um, respect. And so all that said for years, I found myself going, I'm very curious with someday, probably sooner than later, some game is going to come along that, that, that is sort of, that Neil will own top to bottom, uh, creatively. And I'll be very curious how much it is similar or different from what I'm hearing because there's very obviously you doing exactly what you need to do and, and, and beautifully at that on the Warcraft stuff and overwatch and Starcraft and all the rest of it. Um, uh, but that's why, so rend I remember was a game that I was like, I saw you sharing, Hey, here's a new thing I've got coming out. And, and it, it felt, it was like, this is, this is not related to blizzard. This is its own thing. And I remember, um, that score was so kick-ass. It 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 first off, it was one of those where I remember thinking, fuck man, this guy really knows how to mix. <laughs> like it just was the polish of it from a production standpoint it was awesome, especially with all the Einar Selvic vocal stuff. And it just was like, this is this is not uh, that grand fantasy Lord of the Rings, like the stuff that very much your name conjures. This was a whole other beast. But the polish from working on titles like that was very, like the polish learned, the skill, the craftsmanship of it was clearly in evidence. But it was a whole other musical identity. Uh, it was really exciting because, you know, it felt like you'd really, you were really given a shot to do something much more singularly yours. And holy shit, did you take it? <laughs> um, uh, so, because I don't, I actually don't know anything about that game. So what's the story behind, behind that? And, 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 you know, obviously I'm very curious. Einar has become, you know, he's, he's everywhere these days, but, but I don't know that I knew who he was until you did that score. Maybe I'd come across some more Druna music videos because they tend to be very memorable and viral, but, um, but he's like, I mean, God, it's like, Ubisoft kind of discovered him, and now he's a fixture of Assassin's Creed lately, and so he's just kind of everywhere. And I felt like you were one of the first folks to to sort of bring him into this space that I'm aware of, at least. So, what's the story there? What where what? Bring me up to speed on Rend.
0: So uh, it was you know uh, Frostkeep uh, was a small handful of guys who had previously worked for Blizzard uh, as well as other companies but they uh you know branched off and and started their own little studio in Irvine and I remember visiting them the first time and it was like literally a very small room and just guys kind of sitting around all very sweaty little room but I love the just the uh after having worked on you know so many triple A's and and being on this giant blizzard campus to be in this little room with you know you could tell they they were just branching on their own they were going to work as hard as they could to make this thing that was going to be their own and they brought me in to do the trailer because they had you know seen some of my my cinematics uh, from having worked at uh blizzard sure and then these people uh, that
1: you had collaborated with then directly no i never
0: never had never met them and they you know reached out to me and it was like one of the first times in my career where after you know Kind of trying to branch out trying to find new projects that they came to me and and asked me to do this and and uh when i met them, i just i was so enamored by the passion and the excitement they had for this project and you know the artwork and the just the uh viking mythology seemed really enticing and uh so i did the the trailer they had and um i said what are you doing for in-game music and they're like we hadn't we haven't thought about that yet i said well please let me take a crack at it and uh that was um you know i love that they gave me this clean slate to just do whatever i wanted and uh the trust there uh and i think that you know that you know the the trust you know as a composer as you know we are facilitators of the director's creative vision but every once in a while we're not just facilitators but we are participating in the vision given an opportunity to uh, you know, present some ideas of our own and, and maybe even uh, we're, we're leading the ideas we're saying I have, this is my idea for what the music's going to be. And, you know, they'll say, great, run with that. All they said was, you know, we want to hear want a theme, we want to hear kind of early in the, in the main title. And, um, you know, so because players might log in quickly and you want to you know, Get that melody out there but i started doing some some research and and uh you know came across Arjuna and uh i'm like i that guy's got to sing on on this i don't know i don't know how i don't know you know so i i you know tracked him down and, and said would you be interested in singing on this this game and uh somehow it, it worked out and and uh you know, I, everything I had written was written with him in mind. So I'm, I'm grateful that it, that it worked out. And, um, yeah, just, just one of those that, uh, of course I had it in the back of my mind. This is one of the first things I'm doing. That's all me and, uh, wanting it to be its own thing, but also, uh, you know, it's as much as I, I feel like I'm, I've always been a musical chameleon, uh, not even by, you know, not intentionally trying to be one, but just I ne- I've never taken a composition lesson. I, I've never been told how to write music. It's always been by ear. I hear something and I find my way through it by by my ear. So for that reason, I've never been like locked into any particular style. But when I every once in a while I'll do something that I feel like comes more from inside. Uh, when I get the chance to do that, more often than not, the results are, you know, I'm I'm always happier with those results. I'm happier with the uh, the things that are more personal that come from personal experience and and you know that kind of thing.
1: It's it shows. I mean, because I remember around that same time, I don't remember which one was first, but around that same time, you also did that uh, game Revelation.
0: Yeah, that, was, that remember- was before by I think a couple of years before that maybe.
1: Oh really? It's for yeah. some reason in my mind Rend came first, but I I just know they were both a few years ago, give or take. Um and but that was another one where it felt like it didn't feel like the Blizzard thing, though it was also a big orchestral score. But I remember once I had the physical CD for that and I and I uh um uh was driving to San Diego or something and I decided this is going to be what takes me you know, for the bulk of this drive. And, uh, my God, that was a catchy theme. Um, it was one of those where it was really, I mean, it was like, and I don't, again, that probably traces back to that time sort of in the goldsmith ecosystem where, uh, simple, but very effective, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't ultra long and endlessly kind of meandering the way some melodies can be. It, I remember thinking this guy, this guy gets it like this. This is a thematic mindset that, I, I you know, I, did, I had no personal interactions, but I was raised on a similar diet. and I think of themes, I think through a similar lens of what's the simplest, smallest unit possible. And does it have, even if you come up with a melody that's 12 notes, can the first four notes be enough to make you realize where you are? So you can just even reference it even, you know, in part. And it felt like you had a similar headspace And that score demonstrated it. I thought more than any other that maybe I've ever heard from you because it was just like, God, it was just so spotable. But that's if I remember correctly, isn't that like a, wasn't that like a NetEase or a 10 cent game? Like that was a game that I think was even in the West. If I yeah, I think it
0: eventually got ported over to the West, but originally it was a NetEase game for the Chinese market, and um, you know that getting to write something for the Chinese market in that style was, you know, a daunting task, but, but also a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a special one as well. And I, you know, I grew up, my, my dad used to, you know, we studied Kung Fu together and we'd watch, you know, uh, you know, Kung Fu movies and, and had such a love for the culture. And the year I was writing that he got cancer and on the way back from the, uh, you know to and from the chemo appointments um i'd play him work in progress on the score and and it's the last thing i ever got to play from and, and that it made it very you know very um it was a love letter to him and to everything that he you know gave me uh you know all the inspiration he gave me all the you know uh the love for art and music and everything so you know there are some scores that are personal and there are some that that just um you know part of the fabric of your being and 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 you're going beyond that even to your your ancestry and um that was that was a special one
1: yeah i i remember we i think we lost our fathers a very uh close like in the same time period but i hadn't realized the connection to that score but it does clarify things, you know, it's one of those where, um, it, it, it felt like you were not leaving anything on the table as it were. It was like, this is, this is, I'm going to put all of myself as it were into this. Um, and, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, I want to, like one of the things that I absolutely love, is that in the middle of the pandemic, um, you got to do this wonderful lateral shift back to your TV roots um, and uh, something that's just so unhinged and over the top (laughs) and ridiculous um, that ironically, it's entirely possible that now more people know you for that than anything else. Uh, I would think at least that's possible, which is the, uh, of course, critical roles um, sort of step into the world of animated TV. And one thing that I don't think you realize, I have a lot of friends in that camp. And I remember, uh, when they did their Kickstarter and it raised like a billion (laughs) dollars and there was a lot of discussion happening. Uh, A friend of mine said, you know, uh, I, he, he, he's close with them and said that he just preemptively reached out, um, um, I think to Travis and said, you know, do you know what you're doing it for music? Uh, cause I got a buddy who you should probably meet if so. And w- the word that came, back, like, I didn't even ask for this. The thing that came back was they go something to the effect of, I'm probably misquoting this, but he said something to the effect of, um, w- so we t- weren't sure what we were going to do. And then this blizzard guy, uh, I remember that's the that's the way he described mm-hmm. it. Immediately I was like, I bet I know exactly who they basically was like, there's this guy that's like essentially a fan of the show and just just like walked in with this armful of amazing material to be like, I'm a fan, I know what you're doing, I know what it needs, and I'll prove it. And I already wrote some music to showcase that I know what it is. And they were all immediately like sold. Instant, instant. So that was basically his way of saying, thanks, but we're good, we're set. Uh, and we're stoked. And so I remember thinking, I I have a suspicion. And sure enough, you know, a year later or whatever it was, the behind the scenes start rolling out of the world, showcasing your big grand or orchestral contribution to the world of Critical Role. Um, and it was just so awesome to see. And what I loved is that it's like, it's funny how it's sort of bombastic orchestral music simultaneously as earnest fantasy and like heart, but also it's also like interwoven with the kind of hilarity of it all. Um, just t- tell, tell me the story. I mean, you, you were obviously already a fan. Were you a big D&D guy? Like, how did that even come to be?
0: Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, when I was 12, I was obsessed with D&D and, uh, you know, RPGs in general. I collected a bunch of them. I had the, the Star Trek
1: role-playing game. And Oh, awesome.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, and then, you know, at one point, you know, got to work with Laura Bailey on this song for uh, for World of Warcraft called Daughter of the Sea. Mm. Uh, and uh, I remember uh, I, I wasn't, I knew she did a voice for uh, World of Warcraft, for the character Jaina, but I didn't realize she could sing. And then, she came in the studio and and sang this song for us. And uh, the song that I uh, kind of arranged and co-produced, but was written by Logan LaFloat and uh, lyrics by Robert Brooks, just for the record. Uh, But she came in and just knocked it out of the park to such a degree. I I became an instant fan. I said, you know, I got to, you know, find everything out about her and, and led me to critical role. And like, this is D and D this is, you know, some really awesome voice actors who I've worked with indirectly, you know, in the game industry. And I I mean, Matt
1: is obviously like extremely attached to the whole Blizzard ecosystem, very noteworthily as well. So uh, it would have seemed, uh, it's actually funny that it took that to pull you in uh, since they were kind of right on the edge of your world for so long in that way.
0: Yeah. And I'd actually met the entire cast, um, you know, at at a BlizzCon one time, the entire cast minus Laura and Travis. But uh, so I'd like indirectly like met and, and written music for the voices of a lot of them. And um, so I was a fan. And then every once in a while I'd hear my music pop up in their, you know, in the live stream and, uh, I always felt connected in, in, in a lot of ways. And then the Kickstarter happened and I'm like, I've never known, like th- there's never been a project that is so far up my alley. One is it's, you know, <laughs> love D&D, love role-playing games, love every member of the cast and just love what they're all about. Um, it's a TV show that I have you know, roots in and that I've been wanting to get back into what looking for an opportunity to get back into. It's got such a wide range of, of, you know, emotions from comedy to, to horror, to action, to fantasy, to everything, all things that I've done at one point or another. And it just felt so, so far up my alley. And, and I, I said, you know, Asked Laura, I said, you know, I'd I'd love to be involved in some way. I don't know how, just you know, let them know that I am I'm, I'm interested. And uh, you know, they I think I talked to to Sam, uh, and uh, it was kind of like I felt like they were very happy that I reached out, but weren't quite. There wasn't like a Hey, you got the job right now kind of thing. And there's before the Kickstarter even ended, I, I was just like, you know, I really want to, I really want them to at least know what, you know, what I'm, I'm seeing for this just to, just to make sure that, that they, they even understand like what, you know, what I'm trying to bring to this.
1: And what and you're if, capable of bringing. I mean, they don't deal with composers all day, so yeah. they wouldn't make assumptions about anything, I would think. Yeah.
0: So, you know, wrote a demo and I thought it's like, you know, there's the Your Turn to Roll theme. It's the the song that opened every episode. And, and I thought, well, why not do an orchestral arrangement of that? Something that's, you know, big and sweeping and orchestral, you know, just as a way of saying, you know, imagine this for the show. Yeah. So I think that also very
1: crucially, as a lesson for for younger composers out there who might be listening to this, that's also a wonderful lesson in really knowing your audience. That's such a classic thing. People go, Oh, I want to audition for the next, you know, Doom game. So I'm going to write a big dramatic orchestral score. Or I want to audition for the next, uh, you know, Overwatch 3 or 4 or whatever. And here's my crazy Mick Gordon heavy metal music. It's like, Mm -hmm. you're not going to meet much success if you clearly demonstrate that you don't consume the product you are pitching for. Uh, and I think, I think the savviness of taking their theme and giving it this kind of loving treatment, it might have seemed obvious to you, but the number of composers I meet who express frustration over their demo p- success rate, often I go, well, how much homework did you do on the client beforehand? And it's amazing how often they're like, well, I, I don't know. they I just figured they would think this is cool or whatever. It's like, yeah, but people have very different definitions of what's cool or or even if they think it's cool independently, there's also the question of what's right for this. So I just want to, you know, single that out as a, as an important lesson, not to be glossed over, but continue the story.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I wrote the demo and thought, well, I got to record this with an orchestra because you know, that's the only way to really convey what, what I'm going for here. So, uh, you know, I'm not the first person to record orchestra for a demo, but it's it's just uh, there are things in the samples you just can't that aren't sure. going to you know sell it. So it's also it's a gesture. It's yeah. also
1: it's also a very clear statement to them that you are not fucking around.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't trying to be heavy-handed with it, or you know, uh, you know, showboating or anything. It's just like just felt like the right thing to do. So. Sent him that, and along with a you know little video clip of the orchestra playing, and seemed like it would be a good way to just kind of convey the excitement of of you know real players playing it. Uh, sent it to them, and and said, you don't have to use this, or you you can, you can use this uh, uh, in your promotional materials. This is just a gift for for considering me, because I knew at the time that you know I had some, uh, in some ways, you know. I've heard some people say, oh, you know, of course, you know, he's got all these credits and this and that, but I hadn't done TV for a long time and I I didn't feel like there was any guarantee that I was going to get it. So I genuinely just said, you know, you take this and um, I just want you to know, I appreciate you, you considering me. And then I just, you know, forgot about, of course that, you know, it was very well received and they were very thankful for it, but I knew that that wasn't like instant, uh, you know, you're instantly hired, and and you know I just walked away, and like I've done with every demo I've sent, do the best I can, send it, and then move on to the next thing, and and try not to think about it. Sure. Although, admittedly, this is one of those that, like,
1: yeah, it could I, a lot I, easier I, said <laughs> than done. <laughs>
0: like, really, you know, I was really hoping something would happen with it, and then uh, at some point, um, you know, at some point it happened. You know, like you got the. Amazon sends over the the, the deal to sign and like wow this is really happening and um, you know cut to however many years later it is now uh, got seasons one and two under my belt and starting soon on season three and it's been
1: amazing
0: uh, it's been incredible and and, and another thing you're speaking of trust you know it's been another one of those projects where uh, I've been given so much trust to you know, a lot of the temp music, if there is, if there even is temp music is like older stuff of mine. And it's just kind of, you know, th- there's, there's never been any, uh, feeling of like, I have to do any specific thing. It's just kind of finding my way, way And I'll, I, I, what I love about the show is that it challenges, uh, it challenges me every episode and I, and I get to do things that seem like completely, uh, you know, out of left field, but that's what the show is all about. Like, I think I, w- I went in there thinking it's going to be this and that and, and, you know, fantasy and going to have Celtic instruments and orchestra and this and that. And then Sam at one point's like, for episode 10, we're going to have Scanlon's going to, his lute's going to turn into a heavy metal guitar. So I need like a two minute thrashing heavy metal song. I'm like, okay, all the rules are out the door. Now it's just <laughs> literally anything goes. And so, that's, that's been the case. And, 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 you know, very few notes on, on the episodes and everyone's just been, uh, and I'm not saying there's few notes because they, uh, you know, that they, they don't care or that any, it's like they, there's this level of trust and I feel like the we're just all in sync and it's just really, it's really? been a dream gig in that, in that regard. And, you know, you get, not everyone, not every gig is like that, and I'm definitely grateful for that.
1: Oh, I love it! It's such a kind of a fairy tale story of just like, there's a thing I want. Okay, you got it, <laughs> and mm-hmm. and and not that you didn't work for it. Obviously, you did, but you know, sometimes we feel like we really are the perfect person for a thing, and it and it it still doesn't quite work out. And it's it, I've even had it in the past where I felt perfect for a thing, I didn't get it. And then I, when it came out, I went and checked it out and I was like, this only proves that I felt I would have been perfect for this. (laughs) And there's a frustration there. Um, and it's just inevitable, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was so much fun and, and the score is a big part. I mean, it's, it's not like tucked away in the mix, all buried and impossible to really parse in the context of the show too. It really feels like, no, no, this is, this, the music is supposed to be truly felt you know, Michael Kamen once said something like, I, I want to write music that's actually heard, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like the goal isn't to disappear invisibly in the background, but to actually participate in the storytelling. And I think that your work on that uh, really does. So um, I just love that. I, I I have one last thing. I, I just want to, if only mention, if not ask about, uh, because there's another thing of yours that I really love. Uh, I, I love, I particularly love just sort of symbolically what it represents, but when you released, uh, the velvet machine, uh, uh, first off, I love that the cover art showcases some of your freaking just unbelievable work, uh, as a visual artist, uh, and sculptor, these, these crazy instrumental kind of sculptures that you have made that you've, that you've showed before. Um, it's just so amazing, but setting that aside, I just love that you you shared very openly online as it was preparing to come out that you know this was a thing that was like decades in the making and it was something coming from a really personal place um and you really invested in I mean you really like you it wasn't just here's my little thing you know and then I'll release it just so it's done but like I mean you were even recorded AFM if I remember correctly yeah. like you really in fact, isn't Mike Lang on on that? Um... He is, yeah. Oh, yeah, God, that just makes me so happy. I had forgotten that, and t- suddenly, I, I, I kind of triggered my own memory just now because, yeah, that that's so special. And so, anyway, I just would love to hear you say a few words about kind of what prompted you to finally bring over the finish line a thing that was kind of gradually being chipped away after all those years. And it, and it's worth. I encourage people to go check it out because for somebody who is so. Uh, whose whole career is built on like grand orchestral statements it is so not that uh and again the production chops are astounding i remember listening to it blasting it here in the studio and uh, when you first sent over the mixes uh, and, and it was like holy hell that that is a mix i wish i could mix that well um and so anyway just i've just open endedly anything you want to say about it It just seemed like the, the perfect note to end on because as personal as, you know, revelation and, and rend let you be yourself. And obviously as much as the Vox Machino let you really kind of come from a, I'm built for this, uh, velvet machine is truly yours. And I just seemed like the perfect note to end on.
0: Yeah. Thank you for the, the grand setup. Uh, you know, I had, I had, as I mentioned, I, for a few years before I decided to become a composer for film, I wanted to be a recording artist, but never actually released anything. I, you know, for when I was 17, I I made a cassette of songs, um, you know, that I would always, you know, draw my own cover art. And and that was half the fun for me. And, uh, And then when I was, in college I, I made another album called eclipse actually the the name of the group was eclipse but it was just me uh and the album was called voyage and it was just a collection of songs that i had i was kind of just using the the equipment at, at school uh you know just to experiment and kind of you know come up with songs but never actually released anything and then over the years i would every once in a while i i'd, I'd get enough downtime where i'd be able to hear hear my own voice and you know it's difficult when you write music for a living to to be able to to be quiet long enough to be able to hear your own voice but it would happen from time to time and over a course of 14 years i built up this little kind of catalog of half finished songs and um at some point i i don't even know where the impetus came, but I said, I I I need to finish this. I need to actually put these out and, uh, started working on it and, you know, gave myself a deadline. He said, I'm going to record, you know, strings at East West studios, AFM, and I'm going to have Mike Lang play these extremely simple piano parts just so Mike Lang can play on something I did because I hadn't been able to find the right thing. So, um, it was this wonderful opportunity and I got to conduct it and um, uh, you know, it, it took me a couple more years to get it out. And it was sort of like the beginning of the pandemic when, you know, things, everything kind of slowed down a bit. That's when I finally got over the finish line, but you know, just it, I didn't realize at the time, like just what a challenge it, it is to when you're doing something just for yourself to figure out like, you know, with what are the rules, what are the what makes this song finished? Or what is what is this song? You're just coming up with these ideas that were all kind of complementary in some way. How do all these pieces that were written over 14 years, how do they relate and, and come together as an album? And then, you know, I, the electronic side of things um, kind of became something that joined some things together that hadn't previously been envisioned that way. Uh, but the other thing, too, is when I when I'm not working, when I listen to music, I'm usually listening to like synth pop from the 80s. I'm like I'm not, you know, listening to classical music. I not absolutely nothing against classical music. But when I'm trying to just, you know, cleanse the palate, I'm listening to, you know, stuff I grew up with. And uh, so this was kind of like channeling that voice that I never really had a chance to to put into any kind of recording. And I, you know, finished it and, and it was this, you know, strange, you know, you get into a zone when you're writing a, a single track. It's like this, I got into this like two month long zone where I just somehow finished everything, got everything mixed, submitted, put it out there and just thought, I have no idea how this is going to be received. I mean, nobody out there is would expect this. None of the people that follow my work are going to, you know, not to say they won't like it, but they're like, this is not what they know me for. So who knows what they're going to think of it. Uh, and I have to be okay with that. I just, I just want to put it out there because it's something I've always wanted to do. And if a single person out there listens to it and, and enjoys it, I get something out of it, gets what I'm going for, then it's worth it. And even if they don't, it just needs to get out of my head it needs to get out there in the world. And I can finally say that it's done. And, um, you know, the one of the hardest things in art is starting something and finishing something, you know, getting past the blank page and actually starting something. But then my biggest challenge was always like, you get a half finished idea and I never go back to it. How about I go back and I finish it, put it out there in the world. And it can, can say it's done. And, you know, luckily enough, uh, you know, it was well received and and people liked it, even though it's just so dramatically different than anything else I'm known for. But it's it's funny, like when you talk about like things you're known for, I'm only known for what I'm known for because that's what I've done more of. That's what's out there the most isn't by any means what I, you know, who I am as an artist. Um it's just another side and it's probably the most personal side. Like if I, if I wasn't, if I hadn't been, you know, uh, carried off by film and game music uh, of which has been an incredible gift to be able to do that, I'd probably be doing stuff like that, you know, just a little more, you know, electronic song driven stuff. And I'm glad I got the chance to put it out there and, and, it took so much out of me that it's hard to imagine ever doing that again but i'm sure at some point when things quiet down long enough to for that voice to be heard again i'm sure something else will come about
1: well i, I that is beautifully stated when you said uh, in the moments of quiet you hear your own voice and a lot of people regretfully look back at the early days of the pandemic right now and say, I had this chance, that moment of quiet, and all of the internet was telling me, hey, now's your chance to take up painting or cooking or whatever. And and I didn't do it. And And, uh, and obviously, we all confronted that hurdle in our own way. But uh, for you to have uh, let that moment of quiet or comparative quiet um see this long gestating thing over the line I I thought was beautiful. Um, and I just always, as a, as a composer who similarly aspires to a certain amount of chameleon and variety in my work and in my, in my, in my writing, I always admire when somebody kind of says, you know, you think, you know what I can do, but let me just show you something completely out of left field. I just never not get excited about that. So bravo. Uh, Dude, thanks so much for indulging all my stories and so much of your time. And, and uh, uh, you know, I I remember once I scored a film uh, that I was excited to work on because the screenwriter, the director of this film had been the screenwriter of Small Soldiers. And I said, anybody that was in orbit in any sense to Jerry, I want in my life. Uh, so I will happily do your film. It ended up being a wonderful film. Um, indie drama. Um, but it didn't matter. I was just like, that's secondary. (laughs) Uh, so especially even on a ostensibly game music podcast, uh, indulging all those stories of Joel Goldsmith and Jerry Goldsmith, I'm, I'm really appreciative because those are, those are guys whose legacies are, are yes, of course, primarily through their work. But the personal stories and the kinds of guys they were, especially to those that they kind of let into that inner sanctum, are stories worth preserving. And I'm really, really grateful to have a little taste of that here. So for all of it, thank you so much. And hopefully we'll see you again soon. Thank you so much for having us. so much fun. Thank you for joining us for The Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.